our studies in First Thess, we've seen uh, that the Apostle Paul, he was only in Thessalonica for a very short time. We're told in the book of Acts that he was there for three Sabbaths. And, and some people say that he was there for up to a couple of months. We don't know exactly, but it wasn't very long. And uh, during that time, uh, he'd begun to instruct them as to what it was, what it looked like to live as a follower of Christ. He was calling them, God was calling them and calls us to live differently. We looked at that last week. So then as he was just getting started, just getting going, the Holy Spirit was being poured out in significant measure. Great numbers of people were coming to know Christ. We know that because he says that you're a model church that people are going out from you all over that region of the empire, Macedonia, which was a huge region. And so as that's going on, persecution arose and he had to leave. Uh, didn't want to. He was, he was accustomed to sticking around for a while. We know that in Corinth, he stayed for a couple of years. In Ephesus, he stayed for a couple of years. He wanted to be able to pour into these people and to continue the work. And he was forced to leave. Otherwise, if they were, there was a warrant out for his arrest and they would have not dealt with him kindly. So going from there, leaving them now... In Corinth, Paul was virtually in the dark with what was going on with this infant, with this baby church, with this church that he had just gotten started, had to leave. He had sent Timothy, uh, who was his protege. He was a young, probably a young pastor by that point. Uh, he, Timothy had just come on board with Paul's ministry when Paul, on his second journey, had met him at Lystra. And, and had decided to bring him along. And this is still part of that journey. So he hasn't, Timothy's young in the Lord and young, definitely young in leadership. And Paul, he, he's sort of in advice. He has to ensure that this church grows and is nurtured, but he can't go himself. So he sends Timothy to go back to Thessalonica and to carry on the work. Well, so then as things go by, He's very concerned. As I mentioned, he's in the dark. He has no idea what's happening with these people. He knows that persecution was on the rise, significant persecution. That's why he had to leave. And he knew that that wasn't just him. It was for the people as well. So he leaves. Timothy is there. And then Timothy and Silas, who also was with him on this journey, came back to Corinth and met with him there. They were reunited there. By this point, Paul is super concerned and he has, he really, he's concerned in a couple of ways. First, he was concerned for their spiritual well-being because he hadn't had, a, had adequate time to disciple them. He had to go. Secondly, he was concerned for their physical well-being because of the persecution, ongoing persecution, uh, that the people were enduring. So, as I mentioned, he's in the dark. And so Timothy comes back and he's reunited with Timothy and Silas in Corinth. And, and so... He gets a good report from Timothy. He decides, I need to write back to this church. Remember, we looked at, he wanted to go back to see them in person, and he tried several times, but Satan hindered him. That's what we're told earlier in this letter. And so he wasn't able to do that. His option that at that point was that he needed to write a letter to them, and we get the benefit of that here. It is a Holy Spirit-inspired letter. I mean, it's included in the canon, which means the list of Scripture, because this is inspired writing. And he is not writing to give a set of his opinions. He is giving them God's word. Uh, and so <clears throat> last week we saw that it, he acknowledged that they were doing well. 
And he said, I want, even that they had become a model church, as I mentioned. In light of that, he was strongly exhorting them, urging them to continue to increase, to abound all the more. We looked at that and to continue to grow in their relationship with Christ. So understand that the Apostle Paul, he was a fascinating man. He had dual citizenship. He was a citizen of Rome. He was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, which is a Roman province in what we would look at as as, uh, not quite Southeast Asia, but in Southern Asia, where modern-day Turkey is. And so he understood Roman customs and he understood pagan worship and all. He was, he was raised in it, but he was also a Jew. And so he understood Judaism as well. He understood both cultures. Part of why he was uniquely equipped to go to the Gentiles, because that was who his ministry was to, was to the Gentiles. And that's anybody that's not Jewish, was because he understood their culture. And he knew, he knew the problems, the challenges that these people faced as they walked away from the pagan idolatry that they had been involved in, because as we looked at last week, their culture was steeped in, in, in crazy, sexualized, very perverse worship. And so he knew that there were challenges because I'll tell you what, when your light shines for Christ, the darker it is, the brighter that light is. And they were coming under it for that reason. So he sees that these people, they're, they're leaving their old life behind and they're beginning now to live differently. And so his ex- exhortation had been really strong and he didn't leave any room for that to be misinterpreted. He said, look, you have to live a different, there's a, living a different kind of life. It's not an option. It's a commandment from God. And so they were to be lights in that dark culture. Remember, now on a cloudless day, it's kind of like on a cloudless day, you can see Mount Hood from here. That, that would be just exactly how it was. On a cloudless day, they could see Mount Olympus, which was the center for cultic worship in their day. That was where all of the Greek pantheon and the Roman pantheons of gods, where they're alleged to have, and we know this is demonic, I mean, not saying that they actually were, but that was their, that was their place. And so they had this constant reminder of the culture that they'd come out of as they began now to walk with the Lord and they began to see their lives transformed by the working of the Holy Spirit within. So in that, in a a matter of speaking, the Thessalonians had hit the ground running. Have you ever known somebody, I mean, when they come to Christ, it's like, man, they are on fire. And these people were on fire fire for the Lord. They were really going for all that they could in Christ. Problem was that they hadn't been adequately discipled. Timothy didn't even have enough time to actually pour into them the way that he'd like to. And that's part of why Paul's writing this letter. So what they were doing, because looking for the Lord's return was always part of the message, and it should be in our lives as well. We should be living expectantly, living in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back for his church. Well, they were taking that to such an extent that many of them, they were no longer working. <laughs> well, why should I work? <laughs> Jesus is coming. Well, and so they became idle, actually kind of lazy, and they began to become busybodies. And, and so Paul is seeing, he sees their zeal in this, and he sees their zeal uh, and he understands that in living that way, they're out of balance, that their, their witness is going to be compromised, that they can't continue on in that way because it's, it's really messing up their witness. So 
what we wrapped up with last week, I'm going to go into verses 10 through 12 here, uh, because it brings us up in context of where we're at starting in verse 13 today. He says, but we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life. <laughs> don't, be, don't be making a lot of noise. He says, mind your own business and work with your own hands. In other words, support yourself. This isn't time for you to quit your job and live off of other people because you think Jesus is coming back. (laughs) He said that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. So he's saying, look, there's a balance to be had in this thing. He's essentially saying that there's a healthy balance in this Jesus is returning thing that you're doing. And But his point is, is that living an unproductive or counterproductive life as we wait for his return will compromise our witness to those who are outside. Uh, and, and so uh, there is a balance, though. On the other side of that, we, they, were correct in anticipating his return. That's part of, again, that's central to the hope that we have. Evidently, as they were waiting, some of the Thessalonian Christians had died. And so that began to cause them to scratch their heads and to wonder, all right, I've been waiting for Jesus to return in my lifetime. And we know that Paul expected that himself because he uses the word we here in the text when he says we who are alive will be caught up to meet with him in the air. And, And so he's including himself in that. Well, so then what that did was it caused the Thessalonians to begin to question, well, had they missed it? The people that died, what happened with them? What is their disposition? If the Lord hasn't come back and these people are passing away, what gives? So he's addressing that here as we pick it up in verse 13. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Now, sleep in the New Testament is a euphemism. It's for physical death, the separation of one's conscience or consciousness from their body. All right. It's not, however, Death in the literal sense of the word. We'll look at that as we go. He says, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Now, next week, we're going to go through the same passage, uh, verses 13 through 18, and we're going to unpack it. We're going to do a deep dive on that. We're going to go somewhere else this morning on this. But that's what we're going to be looking at then. So I'm not going to belabor that and go right into verse 14. He says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. There's a difference. He's making a distinction. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, this isn't my opinion, this is God's word, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede or go before those who are asleep, those who have died physically. So he's really clear with them. He's not giving them an opinion here. This is the word of the Lord for you. Now, notice, again, he uses the word sleep, and it's because for followers of Christ, again, physical death is not the end of it. And folks, you know, I'm going to be doing a memorial service for Jim Lamborn, a member of uh, our fellowship here, in a couple of days. And and I know that he was a believer. I know his wife believes it, and the reason why we call it a celebration of life is because that person's not dead. They have crossed over. Their body, their earthly body has ceased to function, but he's moved on. He's gone on to be with the Lord. And so as we look at this, that's the distinction. Um, 
Yeah, I'm not going to go there. I was thinking about going there in depth, but we'll look at that next week. I got a, a lot of ground I want to cover. But I want you to understand that in God's economy and what the Bible teaches us is there in his in the way that God lays things out, there are two births and two deaths and everybody gets three. All right. So in John or in second or in Ephesians chapter five, I'm sorry, second Corinthians chapter five. Uh, Paul tells us, he says, to be absent from the body is to be present from, with the Lord. In John chapter 11, uh, Jesus is consoling Martha over the death of her brother, Lazarus. And he says to her in verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me, get this, shall never die and, and then I picture his eyes just barreling into Martha as she's grieving her brother dying, laying there and, and getting ready to put him, or he's actually in the tomb by that point. And, and she's grieving and, he, and he's looking at her and he says, Martha, do you believe this? Do you really believe this? And folks, that's a challenge for us. Do I really believe this? Because it's true. It's not death. It's not literal death. Now, on the other hand, those who reject Christ's offer of salvation uh, through the new birth, in other words, those who are not born twice, born again, will die twice. It's physical death, separation of my consciousness from my body, and then what the Bible refers to as the second death. And that's the separation of my consciousness from God. And that's permanent. Once that's taken place, it is eternal separation from God. That's why, I, and I pray that you have a burden for the lost. I pray that you have a burden for people that don't know Christ because I believe that the door is closing. And when that last Gentile receives Christ, he's going to wrap things up. And we're going to look at that more this morning and next week. Because this is, these are very, very serious times that we live in. So we'll look at that again next week. But I want to shift our focus for the, the rest of our time this morning I want to look at a thread that runs through the entire New Testament. Actually, it runs through the entire Word of God. Uh, but we're going to look at passages from the New Testament uh, that have to do with the text that we're in this morning. And I want to be able to expound on the text. Like I said, we'll do that next week. We'll go verse by verse through it. But this morning, we're going to do something differently. What I want to do is I want to talk about nine parallels of the first century Jewish wedding need to understand some things here. This is a thread that runs all through the word of God and it is powerful and the parallels uh, that we see are unmistakable. I want to look at the plan of God in it as it's revealed through different writers and different men as we go. So with that, I want to just jump right in because again, we're going to cover all nine of these and then we're going to wrap it up and apply it at the end. So we've got some work to do. The first one is the betrothal or the Erosene, all right? So when a father in their culture, when he saw that it was time for his son to marry, he sent a servant of his to another village to find a bride or to find a wife for him. We see that in the Old Testament. It was usually someone his son had never met. So in John chapter 3, verses 28 and 29, breaking into the middle of what John the Baptist had to say, before he, as he was announcing Christ, as he was announcing Messiah, he says in verse 29 or 28, he says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but 
I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Hang on to that. We're going to talk about the bridegroom's voice here later on. He says, therefore, this joy of mine is made full or fulfilled. So this servant, at that point, he went with his best offer that his master could afford. uh, And it might have been a customary thing was 10 coins. It could be silver. Or if he was a wealthy man, it could be gold. Uh, And once he had found a suitable woman, he made an offer for her to enter into marriage. This was the dowry. This was the thing that they did. Uh, It was an arranged marriage. So if the woman's father was impressed and accepted the bridegroom's offering, he called upon his daughter for her response. So uh, this is up to the dads now. The father is involved here. Now, she can say yes or no. (laughs) I mean, she had the option to do either. And, And yeah, but that was true. But in that culture... Uh, opportunities for her to marry and to have a family were not predictable. So likely she would say yes. So at that point, the servant would leave part of the agreed payment and he would go back with the news. And once the groom's father approved the choice of the bride, the bridegroom then himself would go to meet his bride-to-be for the first time. At that point, the betrothal began. Uh, And it would be a one to two year binding agreement, uh, engagement that had two stages. One was spiritual. The other was physical. Now betrothal, the word erosene, it means sanctified. And we talked about being sanctified last week. And, And what that means is that couple now was set apart for marriage at the end of the betrothal period. So in Christ... The body of believers or the church, I mean, it's not the building, it's the people inside. You and I are the church. Uh, We are the bride. And Jesus, the Messiah, is the bridegroom. So we, the bride, are set apart to and for him. Second thing we look at here is the groom's promise or the tenaim. So the first time that the betrothed saw each other, the groom paid a bride price known as a mohar, in full and declared in a loud voice, the price has been paid in full. He did that in front of the whole village. In 1 Corinthians 6.20, he says, Paul writes, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You belong to him. So the bride would have to be at this point, she's got the money, she's got the coins, and she'd she'd have to be really careful with the coins not to lose them because they would become part of her bridal gear, uh, the part of the garments that she would wear at the wedding. But in, in a very similar manner as with an engagement ring, she would make a headpiece in which it would adorn these coins and she would wear that during the betrothal period as a symbol that she was off the market. Guys, don't look any further here. I'm taken. And so that would be how she would signal to the people around her in her community that she was now in this betrothal process, that she 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 was promised to someone. So as we look at that, in Luke chapter 15, we see it's the parable of the lost things. Now, there in Luke 15, it's the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the lost or the prodigal son. 
Now, that particular passage, and I just love to just jet off into that and teach that. I love that passage. It's one parable, but it's three parables. All right? Now, these, and we're going to look at the, the, the middle one, the parable of the lost coin, um, because there we see a woman who we're told that she, having 10 coins, she loses one. And she is frantic. We're told in the text, I'm not going to go there, that she she sweeps out the whole, I mean, she is turning over everything. She can't find this coin. Likewise, when she finds it, that she is full of rejoicing, full of joy. And now the whole parable is not about things that are lost. It's about things that are found. And that's Jesus' point in that. And, And again, I'd love to teach it, but we don't have time. But for the purpose that we're looking at this morning, I believe it doesn't say so, but I believe that that was a, that coin was so valuable, worth way more than the the face value of the coin because it was part of her bridal garments. And so, as we look at that, the reason why she's so upset is she couldn't lose that. Third thing we look at is the covenant or the ketubah. Once the price had been paid for the bridegroom, a contract document or ketubah, which was a covenant promise, was signed to record the agreed terms of the betrothal. So they negotiated, and they came, they made a deal, and now it's time to sign on the bottom line here. So it's stated there that the groom would provide for the needs of his future bride during the betrothal period. The ketubah was designed to protect the bride more than it would protect the groom. The groom would be the one caring for the bride. And once it was signed, he would declare in a loud voice, it is finished. The deal is done. Yeah, it's the same word in Hebrew, Aramaic, to telestai. Uh, And in John 19.30, Jesus from the cross, when he had received sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The covenant was in place. So before the bridegroom left for the betrothal waiting period, he would spend precious time with his bride-to-be. Uh, and in that, you know, there would have been great joy. Uh, it would be a time for them to get to know one another because, I mean, after all, they're going to spend the rest of their lives together. It'd be kind of nice if you get to know that person and, and, and it, they would be doing that. They would also There would also be some stress in it. They would be concerned about things that lie ahead, concerned about different aspects of their lives, because they're, again, they're just now beginning to blend as a couple. In John 14, chapter 14, verse 27, in the first part of 28, Jesus is in the upper room. Dinner is is finished, and, and he is talking with his men, preparing them, because by this time the next day, he would have been to the cross, and he would be in the tomb. And so he's giving them some parting instructions, and encouragement at this point because he's just told them that he's leaving. He says in verse 27 of John 14, peace, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And and get this, he says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. Fascinating. Bridal language. The fourth thing we look at here is the groom's promise to prepare a place for his bride, the chupa. So once the bride price or the mohar was paid and the covenant or the ketubah was signed, there was a groom's speech of promise. 
This is where he would make a proclamation. He would declare, uh, at this point, he would say, I must go now because I'm going to prepare a place for you at my father's house. And this was the bridal chamber or the chupa. And and folks, this tradition is still kept to this day. Uh, And and you can search these things out. and, And these are all relevant terms back then. Many of them are still used now. So at that point, the groom would go back to his father's house and build an addition to the existing dwelling where he would receive his wife after their betrothal. Now, I have shared this before, but I'll share it again because it's, it's appropriate. When I was in Israel, uh, Stacy and I were at Capernaum, which is where Jesus located his ministry after <laughs> they kind of ran him out of Nazareth. And, and I was there, I was, I was leaning against the railing. I was at, at the synagogue, there's a railing, and I'm looking out over the ruins of the city. And there, there were all waist-high pillars. That was all, that's all that's left. But it was kind of like looking at a blueprint for a house because as I looked at this, I could see the outlines of the different dwellings and the different places where people lived. And so I'm looking at this and I'm seeing all of these square pillars. And there are rock pillars, again, waist-high. And as I'm looking, I see at one point, I see a whole row of round pillars. And I thought, well, that doesn't fit. What on earth is that? And so I asked our, our, our guide, a guy by the name of Arya Bardavid, who's a fascinating Messianic Jew, uh, founded a, the only Christian kibbutz in Israel and all, uh, war hero, just a, a very knowledgeable man. I said, you know, Arya, what's this about? And I pointed it out. And he said, oh, that's where the sun would come. And the sun was dividing off his father's house so that he could make a chamber for his bride. That would be where they lived when they moved in. And, and I, I stood there on that rail looking at this rope. I mean, it's a bunch of rocks. But it really struck me in that moment, folks. It's not about, you know, it, it, it's not my, in my father's house are many mansions. I think that that's a, that's a really poor translation. In my father's house are many dwelling places. And I'm going to leave and I'm going to prepare a place for you I mean, it, it just fits so beautifully. And as I looked out over these ruins, I, I, the tears were welling up in my eyes because I realized in that moment, it's not about the house. It's about the one in it. It's about my father's house. And the groom has gone to prepare a place for his bride. Uh, you got to catch the linkage. You got to catch the parallels in this. This is so fascinating, wonderful. Um, so he, he'd go back, he'd prepare this dwelling. Then the bride would say to him, don't go. And the groom would respond, it's better for you that I go, but I'll be back. She'd ask when, and he'd respond, I don't know, nor does the servant. Only my father knows the day. John chapter 14, verses one through three. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. I'm not going to read mansions. (laughs) It's dwelling places. He says, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. Wedding language. Absolutely, unmistakably the language of a Jewish wedding throughout the scripture. This thread runs through the scripture. 
In Capernaum, in John chapter 16, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. In Matthew 24, 36, he says, But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. So at his father's house, the bridegroom prepared the chupa, the bride's chamber. And meanwhile, the bride had to be ready. She was, he, he left because he had work to do to prepare for the, receiving his bride. So while he's away, the groom would send a chaperone or a servant to keep an eye on the prospective bride, on the promised bride, to ensure that she'd be cared for and that she'd be watchful for his return uh, when he came. Now, this alertness that, that they had, it would be manifested at night because, again, it was, not, it, it, was not, it was specifically not told when the bridegroom would come for the bride. And there was a very high likelihood that he would come at night, that he would come at midnight. And she had, in the meantime, she would have to keep her oil lamp burning all night long. She had, it was up to her to be found to be ready. The bride would also have bridesmaids, that's where we get the term, other virgins, friends, helping, serving her, getting her ready for, and who were also anticipating the upcoming wedding. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul writes, he says, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Interesting that he puts it that way, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee or the pledge or the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Interesting. To the praise of his glory. Wedding language. The fifth thing we look at here is the wedding garment, the cattell. Now, the wedding garment, or the cattell, it was a white robe. And, and if you've ever been to a fancy hotel, they, they have big, white, long, floor-length bathrobes. I don't have one at home. They're too expensive. But I'm not saying that it was a bathrobe, but it would be a long, floor-length, white robe. And that was the cattell. It would be something that, that would be worn at Passover. It was also, this would be what the groom would wear to the wedding. So I don't have a specific... Scripture reference that deals with marriage here, but if you look at Revelation chapter 1, at the way that Jesus is dressed, if you look at the Mount of Transfiguration, when he's there with Moses and Elijah, his clothing is transfigured along with his countenance, and it's, I mean, it glows with an other than earthly glow. It is a supernatural whiteness that John sees and that the men see there on the mountain. Sixth thing we look at is a ceremonial bath or the mikvah. Now, a Jewish ceremonial bath, and these are around today. When I was at the temple, uh, I was there on the Temple Mount. I was on the southern flank of the temple, the big wall there, and the different places to enter and exit. Um, you could look down the hill, uh, Kidron Valley off to the left, and look, look down the hill at the old city, and there were ruins of just dozens of mikvahs. And it was what the Jews used in, the, in their day that when they were going to go to the temple, they needed to be ceremonially purified. They needed to be ceremonially clean. And that was the purpose of a mikvah. So they had specific instructions for this thing. And 
and they were very, they're still very specific. They're still used today. There had to be water flowing in to this pool and water flowing out because they had to be purified, cleansed by what they called living water. All right. Now, when I went to the Sea of Galilee, there were no mikvahs around the sea. They, they, they didn't exist. And what I came to understand, again, through a, a very wonderful guy, a Messianic Jew that we were with, was that the sea itself is a mikvah. Why? Because the Jordan River flows into it, and it flows out of it. Therefore, the entire lake, and it's a big lake, about a third of the size of Lake Tahoe, if you've ever been there. Anyway, it's a big lake, and, but it's, called, it's considered living water because there's inflow and outflow. Oh, I could just launch on that with the ministry of the Holy Spirit <laughs> because there's inflow and outflow in our lives, but got to stick to this. Contrast that to the Dead Sea. The reason it's called the Dead Sea is there is inflow only. It's the lowest place on earth. There is no outflow. And therefore, it is not living water. It's the Dead Sea. So you have to have living water uh, for this thing. And it was the tradition in the, in the wedding. It was a time for the bride to go into this uh, mikvah and, and for it to be a, a period of not just cleansing, but it also be for a period of introspection on the wedding day. And, and it was mainly used by the brides as they transitioned from being single to now being married. Uh, tradition was also used by the grooms as well. Second Corinthians, or I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verses 25 to 27, the Apostle Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, <clears throat> that he may sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That's the fulfillment of what the mikvah represented. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Wedding language. Absolutely. The seventh thing we look at is the bridegroom coming for his bride. Now, when it was time for the groom to go and, and collect his, his bride, <clears throat> they would go and the groomsmen, the, his attendants, the, guy, the groomsmen, they would run ahead of him. And when they got to where the bride was, they would blow the shofar or the trumpet and shout that he was coming. So, and this was all, they understood the customs. And so the father would turn his head. And while his head was turned, the groom would steal the bride away. The wedding party would then go back to the groom's house, to the one, the place that he'd been preparing for her. And they would meet with the guests there. And that brings us to the text today that we're in, in 1 Thessalonians, verse 16 of chapter 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive uh, and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds and to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord, and therefore comfort one another with these words. Fascinating. Wedding language. Folks, you've got to get this. I mean, I hope that you are getting it. I, these things thrill me when you see these things. 
and you see the design and the plan of God woven through the scripture, different people, different books, different times, and yet it all links together. And it points to us, the bride, the betrothed of Christ. The eighth thing we look at here is the bridal chamber, the chupa. So arriving at their new home, the bride and the groom would enter the bridal chamber, and that's where the marriage would be consummated. After the consummation of the marriage, the guests would rejoice at a wedding feast for seven days. These guys didn't have just a wedding day. They had a wedding week. I mean, they knew how to party in a, in a sanctified way. I mean, they would, this would be a whole week-long feast to celebrate the bride and the groom now being together. Now, and remember, everything we looked at up until this point has been stuff that is fulfilled in the past as far as the church goes. When we get to here where the bridegroom comes for his bride and following, those are things that are yet to be fulfilled. And so as we're looking at this, and we'll get into it next week and look at uh, some just remarkable aspects of this, that as we're looking at this, I want you to understand now we're talking about things that are yet to come. So this wedding feast, it's called the, the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 19, verse 6 through 8. The apostle John writes, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and the sound of many waters, and as the sound of many thundering, saying, Alleluia. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. Listen to this. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Clearly wedding language. Folks, this stuff is, For I look at this, it's amazing and it's powerful. And, and I, it fills me with, uh, with just the desire to keep my eyes fixed on the fact that he is coming back for his bride. And, and I don't know if I'm going to shed this body before or I'm going to shed it afterwards. We're going to talk about both because Paul answers their questions about that. But he's coming back for his bride. The groom will take us and then we will be with him forever. You've you got to understand... I mean, up until now, it's been that spiritual connection. And remember, the betrothal is, is the spiritual connection between the bride and the groom. She, she's not in his presence. Not yet, because he's preparing a place to receive her. But then, then, in that day, face to face. Powerful, powerful stuff. Something else about the marriage supper of the Lamb, and this, this just blows me away, but it is so consistent with our Lord and Master. In Luke chapter 12, verse 37, we see where Jesus at this supper serves us. I mentioned first service. If, you, if that doesn't light your fire, you got wet wood <laughs> because this is powerful stuff. In verse 37 in Luke 12, he says, Blessed are those servants whom the Master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. Wow. Finally, lastly, the Kaddush, the blessing. So remember Jesus, he began his ministry, a place called Cana. He began his ministry with a wedding. And there 
he knew that they were in trouble because they got to a particular part of the ceremony where they were short. They ran out of wine. He didn't change the water to wine because he wanted them to have fun. Yeah, they were enjoying themselves for sure. The shared cup of wine was called the Simcha. It was symbolic of joy at a Jewish wedding. When the bride drinks from the cup after the bridegroom, it's a sign that she is joyfully accepting the covenant that he had signed in the ketubah. Matthew chapter 26. Jesus speaking, or, well, Matthew speaking, but Jesus takes the bread. As, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, the contract, the ketubah, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Verse 30, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. We're going to receive communion this morning. And uh, Dennis, could I have you and Richard, could you guys pass out the elements? What a fitting way for us to segue into coming to the Lord's table. Thank you. Folks, don't let this be lost on you. Don't, don't miss it. One of the reasons why we come to the Lord's table is that we, we need to understand that we do this here in anticipation of the time when we'll be doing this there. That day will come. Jesus is real. This isn't religious mascot stuff. This is real stuff. These are things that, I mean, if you look at the prophetic record up until now, perfectly fulfilled, and you look at where we're at right now, I believe that we're at the end of the age. I believe that with all my heart. I'm not going to try to guess when. I don't know. It might not be in my lifetime, but you know what? It could be before we get home today. In a moment in time, we'll be taken out of here and taken to be as the bride of Christ, taken to be with our groom forever. And there we will come to the Lord's table. And think about this. It will be the first time in history, in the history of the church, in the first time in 2,000 years, that the entire church will be together at one time in one place. Millions of people down through the ages. The Thessalonians that died for their testimony of Christ will be there. Stephen will be there. The Apostle Paul will be there. Great people, great men of God, and regular everyday people like you and I will be there. That's going to be an event like no other. So as I said, we do this here and now because we anticipate doing this there and then. That's part of why Jesus implemented this sacrament, why he said, do this in remembrance of me. He was getting ready to fulfill the contract, to pay the price. Amazing. So as we look at all of this, the, the wedding was that the, the, the groom would send someone ahead of him and he would make arrangements for the groom and the bride to come together. He would be the one that would announce the groom and, and the father would have to check off on it. And then after that, they come and, and the, groom, the groom then makes this declaration. Look, she's off the market. The price has been paid. It is finished. And then after that, the bride is there and, and he's with her for the first time. And they spend time together. And he says, I've got to go. 
I have work to do, but the work I'm doing is for you. The work I'm doing is for you. And church, it's for you. It's not for us as a group. It's for you individually, you and you and you. And he says, look, this is my heart. I love you with that kind of love. So the groom leaves and he's going to prepare a place for her. And she's just waiting. She needs to be ready. We've talked about that. And that when he comes to consummate the deal and, 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 the, the, the shofar will blow and we'll hear our master's voice and we'll be caught up the dead first. And those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up to be with him in the air and to be with him forever. I'm looking forward to next week when we can really dig deep and kind of get into the nuts and bolts of how all of that comes about. But I want to wrap up with a thought. And that's why would he do this? Why would wedding language be central to what we see in God's word as relates to the relationship that he has with his people? And I believe the answer goes back to the beginning. It goes back to before the fall. There was a first relationship that came to be. It was when God had created man and that was good. And he's, he created all this other, these other things. He said, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then the first time he says, it's not good. It's not good for man to be alone. So he creates woman. And, and you know, I, I look at that in Genesis where, you know, Adam gets up, you know, out of the sleep and all of that. And, and, he, and, and in the, the narrative there in Genesis, he goes, oh, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. You know, I don't think he said it like that. I think he went, whoa, this is great. Because I, I believe he was excited. And there was an attraction. There was a divine and a holy attraction between them that was broken. They were created in his image. And that image now was tarnished. It was broken. But, but, we're told in the book of Romans that Jesus is the second Adam. And Jesus is the one who restores that relationship to the way it was in the garden. I believe that's why he uses wedding language throughout the New Testament. And I know that some of us have had tough marriages. I understand that. And this isn't a condemning message. It's just saying, look, that, that image, that, that relationship was spoiled by the fall. But if you want to look at an example of the love of God being poured out in our lives, look at what he created then and what he's recreating now and what we get to experience when we go to be with him. Praise God.